Chapter 3 of Syria, the Desert, and the Sown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jordan Russell. Syria, the Desert, and the Sown by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 3 The morning of Sunday, the 12th of February, was still stormy, but I resolved to go. The days spent at Tanayab had not been wasted. An opportunity of watching, hour by hour, the life of one of these outlying farms comes seldom, but my thoughts had traveled forward, and I longed to follow the path they had taken. I caught them up, so it seemed to me, when Gablan, Namrud, and I heard the hooves of our mares ring on the metals of the Hajj railway, and set our faces toward the open desert. We rode east by north, leaving Meshita a little to the south and though no one who knew it and its loveliness could have borne to revisit those ravished walls, it must not be forgotten that there is something to be said for the act of vandalism that stripped them. If there had been good prospect that the ruin should stand as it had stood for over a thousand years, uninjured save by the winter rains, it ought to have been allowed to remain intact in the rolling country, to which it gave so strange an impress of delicate and fantastic beauty. But the railway has come near, the plains will fill up, and neither Syrian fella nor Turkish soldier can be induced to spare walls that can be turned to practical uses. Therefore, let those who saw it when it stood unimpaired cherish its memory with gratitude and without too deep a regret. Namrud and Gamblan chatted without a pause. Late in the previous night, two soldiers had presented themselves at the door of the cave, and having gained admittance, they had told a strange tale. They formed part, so they affirmed, of the troops that the sultan had dispatched from Baghdad to help Ibn al-Rashid against Ibn Saud. They related how the latter had driven them back step by step to the very gates of Hayl, Ibn al-Rashid's capital, and how as the two armies lay facing one another, Ibn Saud, with a few followers, had ridden up to his enemy's tent and laid his hand upon the tent pole so that the prince of the Shamar had no choice but to let him enter. And then, there they had come to an agreement, Ibn al-Rashid er relinquishing all his territory to within a mile or two of Hail, but retaining that city and the lands to the north of it, including Joff, and recognizing Ibn Saud's sovereignty over Riyadh and its extended fife. Two soldiers had made the best of their way westward across the desert, for they said most of their companions in arms were slain, and the rest had fled. This was by far the most authentic news I was to receive from Nejd, and I have reason to believe that it was substantially correct. I questioned many of the Arabs as to Ibn al-Rashid's character. The answer was almost invariably the same. Shatir Jadan, they would say. He is very shrewd. But after a moment they would add, Majnun, but mad. A reckless man and a hot-headed, so I read him, with a restless intelligence and little judgment, not strong enough and perhaps not cruel enough to enforce his authority over the unruly tribes, whom his uncle, Muhammad, held in a leash of fear. The history of the war has been one long series of betrayals on the part of his own allies, and too proud, if the desert judges him rightly, to accept the terms of the existing peace. He is persuaded that the English government armed Ibn Saud against him, his reason being that it was the Sheikh of Kuwait, believed to be our ally, 
who furnished that homeless exile with the means of re-establishing himself and the country his ancestors had ruled, hoping thereby to weaken the influence of the sultan on the borders of Kuwait. The beginning of the trouble was possibly the friendship with the sultan into which Ibn al-Rashid saw fit to enter, a friendship blazoned to the world by the appearance of Shamari mares in Constantinople and Circassian girls in Hayul. But as far as the end, there is no end to war in the desert, and any grievance will serve the turn of an impetuous young sheik. Though we were riding through plains, which were quite deserted, and to the casual observer almost featureless, we seldom traveled more than a mile without reaching a spot that had a name. In listening to Arab talk, you are struck by the abundant nomenclature. If you ask where a certain sheik has pitched his tents, you will at once be given an exact answer. The map is blank, and when you reach the encampment, the landscape is blank also. A rise on the ground, a big stone, a vestige of a ruin, not to speak of every possible hollow in which there may be water, either in winter or in summer. These are marks sufficiently distinguishing to the nomad eye. Ride with an Arab, and you shall realize why the pre-Mohammedan poems are so full of names, and also how vain a labor it would be to attempt to assign a definite spot to the greater number of them. For the same name occurs hundreds of times. We presently came to a little mound which Gablan called Thelalet el Hersheh, and then to another rather smaller called Thelaleh. And here Gablan drew rein and pointed to a couple of fire blackened stones upon the ground. That, said he, was my hearth. Here I camped five years ago. Yonder was my father's tent, and the son of my uncle pitched his below the slope. I might have been riding with Emir il Kais, or with any of the great singers of the Age of Ignorance, whose odes take swinging flight, lifted on just such a theme, the changeless theme of the evanescence of desert existence. The clouds broke and rain upon us, and we left Thelaleh and paced on east. An Arab, when he travels, seldom goes quicker than a walk, while Namrud, according to his habit, beguiled the way with storytelling. O oh, lady, said he, I will tell you a tale well known among the Arabs. Without a doubt, Gablan has heard it. There was a man, he is dead now, but his sons still live, who had a blood feud, and in the night his enemy fell upon him with many horsemen, and they drove away his flock and his camels and his mares and seized his tents and all that he had. And he who had been a rich man and much honored was reduced to the extreme of necessity. So he wandered forth till he came to the tents of a tribe that was neither the friend nor the foe of his people. And he went to the sheik's tent and laid his hand on the tent pole and said, O sheik, I am your guest, Anadakilak, the phrase of one who seeks for hospitality and protection. And the sheik rose and led him in and seated him by the hearth and treated him with kindness. And he gave him sheep and a few camels and cloth for a tent. And the man went away and prospered, so that in ten years he was again as rich as before. Now, after ten years, it happened that misfortune fell upon the sheik who had been his host, and he in turn lost all that he possessed. And the sheik said, I will go to the tents of so-and-so, who is now rich, and he will treat me as I treated him. Now, when he reached the tents, the man was away, but his son was within. And the sheik laid his hand on the tent pole and said, Ana Dakilak, and the man's son answered, I do not know you, but since you claim my protection, come in, and my mother will make you coffee. So the sheik came in, 
And the woman called him to her hearth and made him coffee. And it is an indignity among the Arabs that the coffee should be made by the woman. And while he was sitting by the woman's hearth, the lord of the tent returned, and his son went out and told him that the sheik had come. And he said, We will keep him for the night, since he is our guest, and at dawn we will send him away, lest we should draw his feud upon ourselves. And they put the sheik in a corner of the tent, and gave him only bread and coffee. And next day they bade him go, and they sent an escort of two horsemen with him for the day's journey, as is the usage among the Arabs, with one who has sought their protection and goes in fear of his life. And then they left him to starve or to fall among his enemies. But such ingratitude is rare, praise be to God, and therefore the tale is not forgotten. We were now nearing some slopes that might almost be dignified with the name of hills. They formed a great semicircle that stretched away to the south, and in the hollow of their arm, Felah ul Isa had pitched his tents. The Dajah, when I came with them, occupied all the plain below, the amphitheater of the Jebel el Alia, and also the country of the northwest, between the hills and the river Zerka Mujamir. The young sheik was camped to the north. His two uncles, Felah ul Isa and Hamoud, the father of Gablan, together in the plain to the south. I did not happen to see Hamoud. He had ridden away to visit some of his herds. Gablan put his horse to a canter and went on ahead to announce our arrival. As we rode up to the big sheik's tent, a white-haired man came out to welcome us. This was my host, Felah ul Isa, a sheik renowned throughout the Belga for his wisdom and possessed of an authority beyond that which an old man of a ruling house exercises over his own tribe. Six months before, he had been an honored guest among the Druzes, who are not used to receiving Arab sheik on terms of friendship, and for this reason, Namrud had selected him as the best of counselors in the matter of my journey. We were obliged to sit in his tent till coffee had been made, which ceremony occupied a full hour. It was conducted in a dignified silence, broken only by the sound of the pestle crushing the beans in the mortar, a music dear to desert ears, and not easy of accomplished execution. By the time coffee drinking was over, the sun had come out, and Gamlan and Namrud rode up the hills north of the camp to inspect some ruins reported by the Arabs. The Jebel el Alia proved to be a rolling upland that extended for many miles, sloping gradually away to the north and northeast. The trend of the range is from west to southeast, it rises abruptly out of the plains and carries upon its crest a series of ruins, out of which I saw two. They seem to have been a line of forts guarding a frontier that in the absence of inscriptions may be conjectured to have been Ghassanid. The first of the ruined sites lay immediately above Fela-ul-Isa's camp. I surmise it to have been the Qasr el Alia, a name unknown to the Dajah marked on the Palestine exploration map close to the Hajj road. If this be so, it lies four or five miles further east on the map than the map makers have placed it, and its name should be written Qasr el Alia. It was a small tell ringed around with foundations of walls that enclosed an indistinguishable mass of ruins. We rode forward some three or four miles to the east, and at the head of a shallow valley on the northern side of the Jebel el Alia we found a large tank, about 120 feet by 150 feet, carefully built of dressed stones and half full of earth. Above it, near the top of the hill, there is a group of ruins called by the Arabs El Mawagar. It must have been a military post, 
for there seemed to be few remains of small dwellings, such as would point to the existence of a town. To the east lay a building that the Arabs maintained to have been a stable. It was planned like a church, in three parallel chambers, the nave being divided from the aisles by arcades of which six arches on either side were standing, round arches resting on piers of masonry. On the inner sides of these piers were holes through which to fasten tethering ropes, and possibly horses may at some period have been stabled between the arches. The three chambers were roofed with barrel vaults, and wall and vault alike were built of small stones set in brittle, crumbling mortar. A few hundred yards to the northwest there is a big open cistern, empty of water, with plastered sides and a flight of steps at one corner. The largest ruin was still further to the northwest, almost at the summit of the hill. It is called by the Arabs the Kasser, and was probably a fortress or barracks. The main entrance was to the east, and since the ground slipped away here, the façade was supported on a substructure of eight vaults, above which were traces of three or perhaps four doorways that could only have been approached by flights of steps. Molded piers had stood on either side of the doorways. A few were still in their places, and the façade had been enriched with columns in the cornice, of which the fragments were strewn over the ground below, together with capitals of various designs, all of them drawn from a Corinthian prototype, though many were widely dissimilar from the parent pattern. Some of the moldings showed a very simple ranceau, a trefoil set in alternate curves of a flowing stalk. Others were torus-shaped and covered with the scales of the palm trunk pattern. The width of the façade was forty paces. Behind it was an antechamber separated by a cross wall from a square enclosure. Whether there has been rooms round the inside of the enclosure, I could not determine. It was heaped up with ruins and overgrown with turf. On either side of the eight parallel vaults, there was another vaulted chamber forming ten in all. But the two supplementary vaults did not appear to have supported a superstructure of any kind. The massive side walls of the antechamber resting on the outer walls of the eight central vaults. The masonry was of squared stones with rubble between set in mortar. We rode straight down the hill and so along the plain at its foot, passing another ruined site as we went. Najarea was its name. Such heaped up mounds of cut stones the Arabs call rujum. It would be curious to know how far east they are to be found, how far the desert was inhabited by a permanent population. A day's journey from Alia, said Kablan, there is another fort called Karaneh, and a third not far from it, Um Er Rasas, and more besides, some of them with pictures, and all easy to visit in the winter when the western pasturages are comparatively empty. As we rode, he taught me to read the desert, to mark the hollow squares of big stones laid for the beds of Arab boys, and the semicircular nests in the earth that the mother camels scoop out for their young. He taught me also the names of the plants that dotted the ground and I found that though the floor of the desert is scanty in quantity, it is of many varieties, and that almost every kind has been put to some useful end by the Arabs. With the leaf of the Utrefan they sent their butter. From the prickly Kursana they make an excellent salad. On the dry sticks of the Bilan the camels feed, and the sheep on those of the Shi, the ashes of the Gali, are used in soap boiling. The role of the teacher amused Gablan, and as we passed from one prickly blue-gray tuft to another equally blue-gray and prickly, he would say, Oh, lady, what is this? 
and smiled cheerfully if the answer came right. I was to dine that night in Fela ul Isa's tent, and when the last bar of red light still lay across the west, Gablan came to fetch me. The little encampment was already alive with all the combination of noises that animates the desert after dark, the grunting and groaning of camels, the bleeding of sheep and goats, and the uninterrupted barking of dogs. There was no light in the sheik's tent save for that of the fire. My host sitting opposite me was sometimes hidden in a column of pungent smoke, and sometimes illuminated by a leaping flame. When a person of consideration comes as a guest, a sheep must be killed in honor of the occasion, and accordingly we eat with our fingers a bountiful meal of mutton and curds and flaps of bread. But even on feast nights, the Arab eats astonishingly little, much less than a European woman with a good appetite. And when there is no guest in camp, bread and a bowl of camel's milk is all they need. It is true, they spend most of the day asleep or gossiping in the sun, yet I have seen the Ajel making a four-month's march on no more generous fare. They can go on such short commons, the Bedouin must seldom be without the sensation of hunger. They are always lean and thin, and any sickness that falls upon the tribe carries off a large portion of its numbers. My servants feasted too, and since we had left Mohammed, or rather Tarif the Christian, to guard the tents in our absence, a wooden bowl was piled with food and sent out in the night for the guest who has remained behind. Fela ul Isa and Namrud fell into an interesting discussion over the coffee, one that threw much light on the position of the tribes of the Belka. They are hard pressed by encroaching civilization. Their summer quarters are gradually being filled up with Felahin, and still worse, their summer watering places are now occupied by Circassian colonists settled by the Sultan in eastern Syria when the Russians turned them out of their house and home in the Caucasus. The Circassians are disagreeable people, morose and quarrelsome, but industrious and enterprising beyond measure, and in their daily contests with the Arabs they invariably come off victors. Recently they have made the drawing of water from the Zerka on which the Bedouin are dependent during the summer, a casus belli, and it is becoming more and more impossible to go down to Amman, the Circassian headquarters, for the few necessities of Arab life, such as coffee and sugar and tobacco. Namrud was of the opinion that the Belka tribes should have asked the government to appoint a Kaimakam over their district to protect their interests. But Felah ul hesitated to call on King Stork, fearing the military service he might impose, the enforced registration of cattle, and other hateful practices. The truth is that the days of the Belka Arabs are numbered. To judge by the ruins, it will be possible, as it was possible in the past centuries, to establish a fixed population all over their territory, and they will have to choose between themselves building villages and cultivating the ground, or retreating to the east where water is almost unobtainable in the summer, and the heat far greater than they care to face. Namrud turned from these vexed questions to extol the English rule in Egypt. He has never been there, but he has heard tales from one of his cousins, who was a clerk in Alexandria. He knew that the Felahin had grown rich, and that the desert was as peaceful as were the cities. Blood feud has ceased, said he, and raiding. For when a man steals another's camel, look you what happens. The owner of the camels come to the nearest konak and lays his complaint, and a Zaptia rides out alone through the desert till he reaches the robber's tent. 
Then he throws the salam and enters. What does the lord of the tent do? He makes coffee and tries to treat the zaptia as a guest. But when the soldier has drunk the coffee, he places money by the hearth, saying, Take this, piaster. And so he pays for all he eats and drinks and accepts nothing. And in the morning he departs, leaving orders that in so many days the camels must be at the konak. Then the robber, being afraid, gathers together the camels and sends them in. And one, maybe, is missing. So that number is short. And the judge says to the lord of the camels, Are all the beasts here? And he replies, There is one missing. And he says, What is its value? And he answers, Eight liras. Then the judge says to the other, Pay him eight liras. Voila, he pays. Philal ul-Isa expressed no direct approval of the advantages of this system, but he listened with interest while I explained the principles of the Felahin bank, as far as I understood them, and at the end he asked whether Lord Cromer could not be induced to extend his rule to Syria, an invitation that I would not undertake to accept in his name. Five years before in the Hauran Mountains, a similar question had been put to me, and the answering of it had taxed my diplomacy. The Druze sheiks of Kanawat had assembled in my tent, under shadow of night, and after much cautious beating about the bush, and many assurances from me that no one was listening, they had asked whether, if the Turks again broke their treaties with the mountain, the Druzes might take refuge with Lord Cromer in Egypt, and whether I would not charge myself with a message to him. I replied with the air of one weighing the proposition in all its aspect, that the Druzes were the people of the hill country, and that Egypt was a plain, and would therefore scarcely suit them. The Sheik el-Balad looked at the Sheik ed-Din, and the horrible vision of a land without mountain fastness in which they could take refuge, or mountain paths easy to defend, must have opened before their eyes, for they replied that the matter required much thought, and I heard no more of it. Nevertheless, the moral is obvious. All over Syria, and even in the desert, Whenever a man is ground down by injustice or mastered by his own incompetence, he wishes that he were under the rule that has given wealth to Egypt, and our occupation of that country, which did so much at first to alienate us from the sympathies of Mohammedans, has proved the finest advertisement of English methods of government. As I sat listening to the talk round me and looking out in the starlit night, my mind went back to the train of thought that had been the groundwork of the whole day the theme that Gablan had started when he stopped and pointed out the traces of his former encampment, and I said, In the ages before the prophet, your fathers spoke as you do, and in the same language, but we who do not know the ways have lost the meaning of the words they used. Now, tell me, what is so-and-so and so-and-so? The men round the fire bent forward, and when a flame jumped up, I saw their dark faces as they listened and answered, by God. Did they say that before the prophet? Mashallah, we use that word still. It is the mark on the ground where the tent was pitched. Thus encouraged, I quoted the couplet of Imra ul-Qais, which Gablan's utterance had suggested. Stay, let us weep the memory of the beloved, and her resting place in the cleft of the shifting sands, twixt Ed-Dujel and Hamal. Gablan, by the tent pole, lifted his head and exclaimed, Mashallah, that is Antara. All poetry is ascribed to Antara by the unlettered Arab. He knows no other name in literature. I answered, No, 
and Tara spoke otherwise. He said, Have the poets aforetime left aught to be added by me? Or dost thou remember her house when thou lookest on the place? And Labid spoke best of all when he said, And what is man but a tent and the folk thereof? One day they depart, and the place is left desolate. Gablan made a gesture of assent. By God, said he, the plain is covered with places wherein I rested. He had struck the note. I looked out beyond him into the night and saw the desert with his eyes, no longer empty, but set thicker with human associations than any city. Every line of it took on significance. Every stone was like the ghost of a hearth in which the warmth of Arab life was hardly cold, though the fire might have been extinguished for this hundred years. It was a city of shadowy outlines, visible one under the other, fleeting and changing, combining into new shapes, elements that are as old as time, and new indistinguishable forms from the old and the old from the new. There is no name for it. The Arabs do not speak of the desert or wilderness as we do. Why should they? To them it is neither desert nor wilderness, but a land of which they know every feature, a mother country whose smallest product has a use sufficient for their needs. They know, or at least they knew in the days when their thoughts shaped themselves in deathless verse, how to rejoice in the great spaces and how to honor the rush of the storm. In many a couplet they extolled the beauty of the watered spots. They sang of the fly that hummed there as a man made glad with wine croons melodies for his soul ears to hear, and of the pools of rain that shone like silver pieces or gleamed dark as the warrior's mail when the wind ruffled them. They had watched as they crossed the barren watercourses the laggard wonders of the night, when the stars seemed chained to the sky as though the dawn would never come. Imra Ulkais had seen the Pleiades caught like jewels in the net of a girdle, and with the wolf that howled in the dark he had claimed fellowship. Thou and I are one kindred, and lo, the furrow that thou plowest, and that I plow shall yield one harvest. But by night or by day there was no overmastering terror, no meaningless fear, and no enemy that could not be vanquished. They did not cry for help, those poets of the ignorance, either to man or God, but when danger fell upon them, they remembered the maker of their swords, the lineage of their horse, and the prowess of their tribe. And their own right hand was enough to carry them through. And then they gloried as men should glory, whose blood flows hot in their veins, and gave no thanks where none were due. This is the temper of a verse as splendid of its kind as any that has fallen from the lips of men. Every string of Arab experience is touched in turn, and the deepest chords of feeling are resonant. There are no finer lines than those in which Labid sums up his appreciation of existence, a poem where each one of the fourteen couplets is instinct with a grave and tragic dignity beyond all praise. He looks sorrow in the face, old age and death, and ends with a solemn admission of the limitations of human wisdom. By thy life, the casters of pebbles and the watchers of the flight of birds, how know they what God is doing? The voice of warning is never the voice of dismay. It recurs often enough, but it does not check the wild daring of the stinger. Death is no chooser, cries Tarafa. The miser, the free-handed, death has his rope around the swift-flying heel of him. But he adds, what dost thou fear? Today is thy life, 
and as fearlessly Zuhar sets forth his experience. Today I know, and yesterday, and the days that were, but for tomorrow mine eyes are sightless, for I have seen doom let out in the dark like a blind camel. Those that struck died, and those that missed lived to grow old. The breath of inspiration touched all alike, old and young, men and women, and among the most exquisite remnants of the desert heritage is a dirge sung by a sister for her dead brother, which is no less valuable as a historical document than it is admirable in sentiment. An Nadir ibn al-Harith was taken prisoner by Muhammad at Uthail after the Battle of Badir, and by his order put to death, and through the verses of Kutaila you catch the revolt of feeling with which the Prophet's pretensions were greeted by those of his contemporaries who would not submit to them, coupled with the necessary respect due to a man whose race was as good as their own. O camel rider, she cries. O camel rider, Uthau methinks, if thou speedest well, shall lie before thee when breaks the fifth dawn o'er thy road. Take thou a word to a dead man there, and a greeting, sure, but meet it is that the writers bring from friends afar. From me to him, yea, and tears unstaunched in a flood they flow, when he plies the well rope and others choke me that stay behind. Raise clear thy voice that An-Nadir may hear if thou call on him. Can a dead man hear? Can he answer any that shouts his name? Day long the swords of his father's sons on his body played. Ah, God, the bonds of a brother's blood that were severed there. Helpless, aweary, to death they led him, with fight fordone. Short steps he takes with his fettered feet, and his arms are bound. O Mohammed, sprung from a mother thou of a noble house, and thy father too was of goodly stock when the kin is told. Had it cost thee dear to have granted grace that day to him, yea, a man may pardon though anger burn in his bosom sore, and the nearest he and the ties of kinship of all to thee, and the fittest he if thou losest any to be set free. Ah, hadst thou taken a ransom, sure with the best of all, that my hand possessed I had paid thee, spending my utmost store. And on yet stronger wing the wild free spirit of the desert rose in his breast who lay in ward at Mecca, and he sang of love and death with a voice that will not be silenced. My longing climbs up the steep with the writers of El Yemen. By their side will my body lies in Mecca a prisoner. I marveled as she came darkling to me and entered free, while the prison door before me was bolted and surely barred. She drew near and greeted me, then she rose and bade farewell. And when she turned, my life well nigh went forth with her. Nay, think not that I am bowed with fear away from you, or that I tremble before death that stands so nigh, or that my soul quakes at all before your threatening, or that my spirit is broken by walking in these chains. But a longing has spent in my heart, born of love for thee, as it was in the days aforetime that I was free. The agony of the captive, the imagined vision of the heart's desire, which no prison bars could exclude, then the fine protest lest his foes should dream that his spirit faltered, and the strong man's fearless memory of the passion that had shaken his life and left his soul still ready to vanquish death. There are few such epitomes of noble emotion. Born and bred on the soil of the desert, the singers of the age of ignorance have left behind them a record of their race 
that richer and wiser nations will find hard to equal. End of chapter 3